Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, we've got a couple of announcements. They don't need to be on the disc. They don't need to go out. So a couple of announcements that everybody... Don't knock the camera over. Man, they get enthusiastic back there. Uh... We're going to have an orientation this Sunday, right after church, for those who are getting baptized. This is just to kind of tell you what to wear, what not to wear, what to expect, what not to expect. This is going to be at 4 o'clock on, and the baptism will be at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, September the 9th. And so we expect that a lot of people in the congregation to show up as well to uh, witness those who are, who are getting baptized. And that should probably not last more than about uh, 30 or 45 minutes. Are they about ready back there? The other thing, and, and you won't want to miss this, there will be an exciting announcement on Sunday morning, immediately following the service Sunday morning. Doug Daly has an exciting announcement, and nobody wants to miss that. Now, regarding baptism, a couple of people have asked some questions, and somewhere between Hebrews lessons 58 through 61, and in some lessons in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in that series, I don't know the tapes, but in Hebrews lessons 58 through 61, I dealt with the importance and significance of believers' baptism uh, in the church age. Okay, I think they have everything working back there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study on Hebrews 7 tonight, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have you to come to in prayer, that we have immediate access to your throne of grace because of the risen, ascended, uh, seated Lord Jesus Christ because of his current uh, session as our royal high priest in heaven. Now, Father, as we continue our study related to the importance and significance of his high priestly ministry, we pray that we may be able to concentrate and focus this evening. We may be able to think through what the writer of Hebrews has to say, and we may come to understand its significance in our own thinking and our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Now, we missed last time, but the time before, we had a sort of a 
review summary of these first six chapters leading up into this uh, chapter 7, which focuses on the contrast between the limited temporary priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, versus the royal high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7 is to a large part an exposition of Psalm 110, uh, verse 4 from the Old Testament. And the focus of this section is to demonstrate these limitations and that because these limitations were understood even within the Old Testament because of Psalm 110.4, that the Jews should have understood that, there were, that the Levitical priesthood was going to be replaced with a superior priesthood that would not end. And so that's what the writer is doing in this particular section from verse 11 down through the end of the chapters, stressing the permanence of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And we see that because of the third line in Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's that word forever indicates the difference. So he unpacks it. That's one of those words you can just say, you can just move over very quickly and not pick up uh, the, all of the significance of it. Remember, in 1446 B.C. was the approximate date, as far as we can determine, when the Exodus occurred. They left Egypt in 1446 and went to Mount Sinai, and it was there that God revealed to Moses the 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law. And while they were there at Mount Sinai, for that year that they were there, it was the time when they constructed the clothing for the priest, the clothing for the high priest. He had, he had the snazziest uniform of anybody uh, in the Old Testament. He had the finest threads. And I, the reason I use the word threads is because the scriptures emphasize that it can't be of mixed threads. It has to be of linen. The colors were just at, were, were glorious and just and brilliant, and he would be seen from a distance. I mean, it wasn't loud, but they were the blues and the reds and all and the jewelry and the gold breastplate. All of this would have, when the sun hit that breastplate and reflected off of it, all of this was such that it would draw tremendous attention to him. He was dressed better than anybody else in all in, in the whole nation, and probably dressed better than any priest in the ancient world of any any other religion and it was with the mosaic law that the priesthood the levitical priesthood was established and that Aaron was appointed as the high priest and God stipulated that the high priesthood would follow from those who were directly descended from Aaron and so from approximately 1445 BC when Aaron would have been anointed and installed as the high priest down through the time of David, which was roughly about 1000 B.C. So we're talking a little over 400 years. The priesthood had functioned, the Levitical priesthood had functioned, and they had a direct lineage of high priests from Aaron. And then during David's life, sometime between approximately 975 and about uh, probably a uh, thousand BC, somewhere in there, 
David wrote Psalm 110.4. So the Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic high priesthood is functioning well, and it is uh, there, there are no problems, and yet there's this indication in Psalm 110 that the Messianic royal high priest will come, and he will not be an, a descendant of Aaron, he will not be from the tribe of Levi, and that he will have a different, a qualitatively different uh, high priestly ministry, and it will be a ministry that will go on forever. And so that is the background to understanding the structure and the argument in these next verses. So we come to verse 11, and it begins, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for, and then there's a parenthesis there, of course it's not in the original, this is uh, understood just from the syntax, and it's a correct understanding, for under it, that is the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So it is a question that is based on a conditional supposition in the protasis. Protasis is a technical grammatical word for the first part of, a, of an if clause. You have if such and so, then so and so. That first part part. The first part is called protasis, P-R-O for first, and then the second part is the apodosis. So therefore, the condition is expressed if perfection were through the Levitical uh, priesthood. And in the Greek, you have an opening uh, clause made up of three particles, amen, un. And the un is your... Uh, concluding particle, your inferential particle, that means therefore he's drawing a conclusion from the previous ten verses. And the conclusion then involves an if clause, a, amen. And the men is just a continuation particle. The key if clause is the ei there. And this is really a second, uh, a second class condition. I think the last time I covered this. I treated it as a first-class condition, but more as a, with the same significance, as a debater's uh, type of use of the first-class condition, which is if we're going to assume this is true, but then it's, it's not. Actually, this is a second-class condition. I did some more work on this uh, since then, and there's only 50 second-class conditions in the entire uh, New Testament, and, uh, and the key marker that you always look for, you know, you always m- memorize certain things when you're going through a language, that what, what makes a first-class condition a first-class condition is it starts with that particle EI, and then you have an indicative mood verb, and then in the uh, apodosis you have an indicative mood verb. And a second-class condition also starts with an EI, but what makes the difference is in the second clause, in the apodosis, you have a particle that's not translated, that's just A-N. However, of the 50 second-class conditions in the New Testament, 11 of them do not have the A-N. See, that's what you, you're taught to look for is that, that A-N. That's your, just your sort of syntactical marker that you've got a second-class condition, and it's not there. But nevertheless, uh, that's just what was happening in the transition of Greek at that time into Koine Greek is that the on was dropped more and more, and eventually that 
uh, disappeared from the language. So I didn't catch that when I was going through it last week. This is actually a second-class condition. The significance is the same as I interpreted it last week, and that is that this is not a true, uh, a, not a true proposition in the condition. Therefore, if, and we'll just, I'm just going to tr- retranslate the first part of this before we get into a complete. I mean, I just want to look at each of these words before we get into a complete retranslation. If perfection, and perfection is the noun teleosis. And teleosis, the root there is that T-E-L-E-I, which is you have teleo and telos, and you have a whole bunch of different words built off of that same root, T-E-L-O, which has to do with bringing something to completion, not so much the idea of, of perfection, the sense of flawlessness. In fact, it is doubted by many people that the that word group ever refers to perfection or flawlessness anywhere in the Scripture. It always has to do with bringing something to completion, something that is partial or incomplete, and it's leading to that which is complete. It's the same word you have for the perfect in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 8 to 13, when it says that when the perfect comes, that which is partial is done away. Some people try to make that flawlessness, so it means that when... Uh, you are face-to-face with the Lord or when you go to heaven or something like that. But that just totally runs against the context that that word there used in 1 Corinthians 13 has to do with completion and the completed canon. So Hebrews 7.11 shouldn't be translated if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, but rather if completion, if the Levitical priesthood was the completed final end priesthood, then then it wouldn't be necessary for another priesthood is what he's saying. So he says, therefore, if completion were through the Levitical priesthood, and it's not, that's how he's setting it up. Uh, It's a second-class condition. Now, the next phrase that we have to look at there is the phrase, if completion were through the Levitical priesthood, that's that a preposition, T-H-R-O-U-G-H, which is a translation of the Greek preposition dia plus the genitive. Dia takes either a genitive or an accusative. If it takes the accusative case, it has the idea of causation, and you would translate it because. Let me give you an example. This is one of my favorites, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's dia plus the genitive. If it was an accused, if the faith pissed us there were in the accusative case, you would translate it, for by grace you have been saved because of faith. But you're not saved because of faith. You're saved because of the grace of God. Faith is simply the instrument or the means through which you appropriate that which God has already accomplished for you, and you're saved because of his grace and because of the work of Christ on the cross. So through indicates the instrument or the intermediate cause of something. And so we see that the Levitical priesthood is viewed here as simply the intermediate cause of how the people came to know the law. And as we'll see, we're going to look at some passages related to the qualifications and the purpose of the priesthood in the Old Testament. One of their purposes was to instruct the people 
on the, the uh, requirements of the Mosaic Law. They were to teach the people the 613 uh, commandments of the law, the prohibitions and the positive mandates. They were to teach them. And so people learned the law through the priesthood, just as you learn the word of God through the teaching ministry of a local pastor. So as the writer of Hebrews is setting this up, he says, therefore, if completion, if the final end product came uh, through the Levitical priesthood, what need would we have for another priesthood? But you see, it didn't come through the Levitical priesthood. And then there's a parenthetical uh, statement there that says, for under it, and under it needs to be uh, analyzed just a little bit. This is in the Greek preposition epi, and it talks, and it's used with the genitive again. It means on the basis of something. And it has the idea that through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, and there you have the uh, uh, third person uh, singular feminine noun. Feminine noun relates to the uh, noun for uh, priesthood. So we know that the it there refers back to the priesthood. For on the basis of it, that is the priesthood, the people received the law. So there, the, the law established the priesthood and sets up the qualifications for the priesthood and defines the priesthood, but the purpose for the priesthood was to teach the people the law and then to lead them in the various ceremonial rituals that were involved in the Old, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law. So for under it, the people received the law, and that's the Greek verb nomotheteo, and it's a perfect passive indicative third-person singular. Now, everybody always hears those grammatical uh, terms and wonder, well, what does all that mean? Well, perfect tense gives us the time frame. It's completed action. And so it's looking at the fact that the people had completed the action of receiving the law. This was what had happened in the past in the Old Testament. He is sort of bundling the entire Old Testament period up together and one big bundle looking at it as having been completed action in the past and says the people received the law through the prophet, through the priest in the Old Testament. It is a passive voice because the people don't perform the action. They receive the action. The action is actually performed by the Levitical priests who carry out the instruction and lead the people in the ritual. So the Perfect tense indicates it's completed action. The passive voice indicates the people receive the law. The indicative mood is a mood of reality. And it's a third-person singular because people is viewed as a collective noun, which means it acts as a singular rather than a plural, even though it's talking about a group of people. So it talks about the fact that in the Old Testament, the people learned the law through the Levitical priesthood. That was part of its function. But that apotheosis, if completion were through, or if it were possible through the priesthood, what further need would there be for another priesthood? That's his point. If, if we got it all with the Levites, why would Psalm 110 come along and talk about a different priesthood, a priesthood that isn't mentioned for uh, almost a thousand years from the time of Abraham 
in approximately 2000 B.C. to the time Psalm 110.4 is written, there's no mention in the scriptures of Melchizedek. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, David writes about the fact that there will be a, a messy, a priesthood associated with the rule of the Messiah that is eternal in nature. So God has given them the law, and the law is to be taught to the people by the priesthood. Now, just a couple of things about the law, because people always get confused about the law. We tend to look, or people tend to look at the Mosaic law through the uh, eyeglasses of the Pharisees in the Gospels. And, the, and we make the mistake of thinking that the Pharisees are accurately interpreting the law. They're not. This is why Jesus comes along and says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They have a legalistic self-righteousness. It is not a consistent obedience to the law. They've taken the law, and they have basically reinterpreted it within their own traditions. And their traditions have become more important than the law itself and has caused them to misinterpret the Mosaic law and caused them to almost deify the law in and of itself or make an idol out of the law itself so that if anybody were to come along and question the law, they wouldn't really be questioning the 613 commandments that Moses gave. They would be questioning rabbinical tradition. Now, what happened was this. In the Mosaic law, you had 613 commandments. Some of them were positive, some of them were negative. And the warning passage, the discipline at the end of the Mosaic law in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28, we've gone through these before, the five uh, stages of discipline or five cycles of discipline that you have at the end of the law was set up and said, if you disobey the law, and you get involved in idolatry, and you disobey the law, then God's going to take you out of the land. And this happened historically to the northern kingdom, approximately ten tribes. It's always referred to as ten tribes, even though there was, uh, when, when Assyria defeated them, a lot of the northern, the people in the north headed south to get out of the way. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken out under divine discipline in 722 B.C., and then the southern kingdom was taken out in 586. Now, this wasn't pleasant. This was not a, a wonderful period that people looked back to with fond memories. And in 722, when the Assyrians came through, uh, they killed uh, well over a couple of hundred thousand Jews were slaughtered. There was famine. There was all kinds of uh, torture and there were families that were ripped apart, and all of this took place, and it was a horrible, horrible experience. And then the Babylonians came along a little uh, more than 100 years later under Nebuchadnezzar. You had an invasion by Nebuchadnezzar in 605. You had another invasion by Nebuchadnezzar in 592, and then his third and final invasion led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, and everything's wiped out, and that occurred in 586. This is a horrible time. Nobody wanted to go back through this again. Nobody wanted to go through this again. So when they, they came, the Jews came back under Ezra and Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and the, at that time, there were those who were extremely conservative uh, among, among the uh, priests who said, okay, we have to establish some guidelines here to make sure we don't violate the law. I mean, if you make a mistake and violate one of those 613 commandments, God's serious. 
he's going to knock you upside the head with a whole bunch of two-by-fours. And we didn't like it. So we have to do something to make sure we don't break those 613 commandments. So what they did was they they were going to take the various interpretations of those commandments and extrapolate those and develop them into hundreds and hundreds of other commandments to build a fence around the law. And therefore, if you wouldn't break any of these extra commandments, if you wouldn't break through the outer fence of protection, then you certainly wouldn't break one of God's 613 commandments. So they, they set, as it were, a border fence around the law. Now, that became known as the Mishnah eventually. The Mishnah. And this was the, uh, the at the time of Jesus, it was still oral, but by the late first century, it was written down. And then as the rabbi, and this is rabbinical theology, this isn't biblical. This is the development of Judaism. This is where you get the rise of your three major groups in Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Now, the Essenes aren't mentioned in Scripture. They're mentioned by Josephus, but they're not mentioned by uh, they're not mentioned by the New Testament at all. And this is most people think that's the group. They were monastic, uh, not completely, but they tended to be very ascetic. They were uh, very concerned with moral purity. They lived out in the desert near the Dead Sea in a community near uh, Qumran. This is the, where. Uh, these were the people that stored the Dead Sea Scrolls and hid them in the caves around around Qumran. So they were they were uh, we would classify them as the uh, hyper righteous uh, ascetics. The Pharisees were that were the conservatives. They were the ones that were really concerned with preserving uh, Jewish tradition and the biblical text. They were very moral. Uh, when you look at them through Jesus' eyes, they had turned morality into a means of spirituality, and so that produced what we now call legalism. But at that, that day, they were the religious conservatives within, within Israel. And the third group were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the religious liberals. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the existence of angels. This is why when the Sadducees come to Jesus and say, if you have this woman and she's married to a man, and he dies. And then she remarries a second time, and then he dies. And then she remarries a third time, and he dies. And remarries a fourth time, and he dies. Remarries a fifth time, and he dies. Remarries a sixth time, and he dies. And remarries a seventh time, and he dies. She so have to have seven, see, the number of pure, uh, uh, perfection. So she has seven husbands, and they all die. Said, well, whose who's, uh, wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Well, Jesus said, you guys don't even believe in a resurrection. Why are you answering that question? And they said, well, wait a minute. You ought to get the DA after her because all of her husbands died. You know, that's kind of suspicious. But the, the, uh, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in, um, in resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. See, you'll never forget that now. So you had the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Sadducees, and that becomes Judaism. 
And that's what begins to be hardened and calcified about the time of Christ in the first century. Now, what happens, just to let you know how, how it develops from there, is when the, when the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70 and there's no more sacrifices, the Sadducees have nothing to offer. The Essenes, well, they expect, they expect the Messiah to come back. They just sort of disappear. Some of them probably went to, a lot of people believe a lot of the Essenes went to Masada because Qumran wasn't very far from Masada. So a lot of them were probably killed uh, in Masada around uh, AD 73 when they had, for those of you who don't know, Masada was sort of like the Alamo, the Jewish version of the Alamo after the Romans, um, after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, the more radical zealot elements all left to go to one of Herod's fortresses out in the desert up on top of what we would call a butte. And he had built this, this uh, uh, fortification up there, and they were able to hold out. But the Romans couldn't let uh, a pack of Jews hiding out in the wilderness just stay there. They had to go destroy them. And so that's a remarkable story in and of itself. But that wiped would have wiped them out. So the only group that was left that had any kind of clout and any kind of faith or trust in the Bible as something significant were the conservatives, the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees were able to pull things together and to reshape Judaism, Jewishness, so that you could survive in an environment without a temple and without sacrifices. So over the next hundred years... The, the the Pharisees and their uh, their immediate descendants were the ones who shaped what has become modern Judaism. And modern Judaism has nothing to do with the Old Testament. Modern Judaism is rabbinical theology as defined by the Pharisees and then further refined during the first thousand years after Christ. So when you're talking or witnessing to a Jew, a lot of times he's going to have some very unusual interpretations of the Old Testament because that's what Judaism and rabbinical theology says. It doesn't have anything to do with, with the Old Testament. And sometimes you get people who think, well, you know, the Jews believe X, Y, and Z about the Old Testament. How, where are we to say it means something different? Well, that's because we have to understand that Judea, modern Judaism is shaped by rabbinical theology and not as it was in the Old Testament. So all of this was just simply as a way of introduction to say, why was the law important? Because don't think of the law in negative terms just because of what the Pharisees did to it. The law had a role, and as I pointed out in previous studies in this series, the law was considered uh, good and perfect and just by the Apostle Paul. So therefore it had within its purpose, within its function, it was righteous. So the, but we have to recognize that there were certain limitations to the uh, Mosaic law. The law could never justify, according to uh, the New Testament, Acts 13.39, along with Romans 3.20 and 28, and Galatians 2.16, which says, Nevertheless, a man is not justified by the works of the law. The law could not justify. Second, the law could not give eternal life, according to Galatians 3.21. The law could not give eternal life. Third, the law could not provide the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.20. This is why, the old, as we'll see when we get into the next 
uh, chapter when we deal with the new covenant that there has to be a new covenant and the sign of the new covenant is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's why you have to have a new covenant is because the old covenant could not provide the Holy Spirit. Fourth, the law never produced miracles. Galatians 3, verse 5. The law never produced miracles. And fifth, the law could not resolve the problem of the sin nature. In fact, the law exposed the sin nature. Romans 8, verses 3 and 7. Now, one of the basic problems that Christians have is trying to understand their relationship to the law. I'll never forget the first church I ever pastored. About six months into pastoring there, I made the comment from the pulpit that the Ten Ten Commandments didn't have anything to do with anybody today. And I visibly saw hackles come up on the back of people's necks. They had never heard that before. And so I spent about the next month having to go back and uh, teach on that, that the Ten Commandments... Uh, didn't establish those principles as being wrong. The Ten Commandments, you know, murder was murder, and murder was wrong before the Ten Commandments. Idolatry was condemned before the Ten Commandments. Adultery was condemned before the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are nothing more than a prelude to a legal document similar to the prelude of our Constitution in relationship to our body of law known, our federal law known as the, the U.S. Constitution. And it is, the, it's the first ten commandments which summarize the fundamental principles that are then carried out in relationship to both civil and ceremonial law in the other 603 commandments in the Mosaic Law. So that the ten commandments had to do with Israel only, and once Israel went out of existence, then the Mosaic Law was no longer a factor, but to people today just have so much trouble. They, they, the law does have a role today because it sets a pattern and a precedent, and we can go to it for patterns and precedents. But it is not a law that is to be taken point by point and applied to other nations or in other uh, other circumstances. So, about four points on the relationship of the church to the law. First of all. Romans 10, verse 4, Paul said that Christ is the end of the law for believers in the church age. That Christ is the end of the law. The law no longer applies. Now, back in the late 70s to early 80s, you had a group of people, they're still around, called Christian Reconstructionists. And the reason they're called Christian Reconstructionists is because they want to reconstruct America, social and political environment and laws, according to the Mosaic Law. And one of their foremost writers, who's brilliant, and I appreciate a lot of things he's done in other areas, was a man by the name of Greg Bonson, who wrote a book called Theonomy and Christian Ethics. And theonomy is just a combination of theos for God and namos for law, and that we were supposed to be under God's law. But what he meant by God's law was not God's overarching righteous standard but the Mosaic Law in specific. And yet we are not under the law. And they tried to say, well, Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law and the civil law is still in effect, but this uh, ignores the fact that the Mosaic Law was never intended for anybody else other than Israel. So that leads to the second point, which is that since the church is specifically not under the law, 
then the law has nothing to do with the Christian way of life. Nothing in the Mosaic law has anything to do with the Christian way of life. Now, we've often talked about the fact that there's two, in a very simplified, not oversimplified sense, there's two, there's actually three or four, but we're going to look, and for our purposes, two major ways to interpret and organize the Bible theologically. We hold to dispensationalism. And in dispensationalism, we believe that there is a consistent distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And that this is the result of a literal, plain interpretation of Scripture. We don't impose dispensationalism on the text. We believe that if you take the text at its face value and read it according to the principles of historical grammatical interpretation, then where that will necessarily lead you is to dispensational truth. And then on the the other hand, there is the Reformed or Presbyterian or Calvinist view called covenant theology. And in covenant theology, they they work more of a top-down system. It's based more on logic than it is on exegesis. And, And the difference is that in covenant theology and Reformed theology, they have sort of a principle that if it wasn't prohibited by the New Testament, then it's still in effect. I know that went past you very fast. People are tired. It's been a long day. If the New Testament doesn't prohibit it, then it's still in effect. In other words, if the New Testament doesn't say, stop observing the Sabbath, then the Sabbath still continues. Okay? Dispensationalists would say that unless a commandment is restated in the New Testament, It ended with the ending of the law. Therefore, you don't have to have a statement that says the Sabbath Sabbath observance have ended because when the law ended at the cross, so did Sabbath observance. So you don't need to come out and say don't observe the Sabbath. It's the only commandment that isn't reiterated in the New Testament. Everything else in the Mosaic Law uh, I mean, in terms of the Ten Commandments, everything else in the Ten Commandments is restated in, in the New Testament. But many other aspects of the law, both in terms of the moral law and in terms of the uh, governmental law, are not restated in the New Testament because why? Because there's not a, quote, Christian theocratic nation operative in the church age. The, the Mosaic Law was the constitution for a nation an ethnic people descendant from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who lived in a particular geographic area and needed to have a law code to govern their social, political, ceremonial, and civil conduct. So when we get into the New Testament, because Israel is going to be kicked out of the land and they're going to be under the fifth cycle of discipline and because the Jews as an ethnic people are not the center of God's plan in the church age, you don't have the reiteration of those particular things. So you don't have, whereas in the Old Testament you had a capital punishment. I know that, that I hope it didn't upset anybody here that last night uh, Texas uh, celebrated its 400th execution after reinstating the death penalty in 1982. I, uh, I, think, I don't think I need to go into the fact that if you are a Bible-believing Christian, then you shouldn't have a problem with the death penalty. You might ought to have a problem with the fact that it is not consistently applied or, as free, or applied as frequently as it should be 
or as uh, efficiently as it should be, but nevertheless, a death penalty isn't uh, contrary to anything in Scripture. In fact, it's mandated by Scripture. But in the Old Testament, the capital punishment was associated with teenage rebellion. Why? To protect the divine institution of the family and the divine institution of, of, the, of the nation so that you wouldn't have rebellious kids who, didn't have, who weren't properly oriented to authority growing up. So that's part of the death penalty. You also had death penalty for adultery, death penalty for homosexuality, death penalty for all these other things. You don't have the death penalty for those things in the New Testament. You want to know why? Because we're not a nation. We don't have to have a civil government. That's why these things are not carried into the New Testament with uh, death penalties because you're not addressing a political institution in the New Testament. The church is not a political institution. It is a multi, not international, but multinational, multi-ethnic uh, organism that is in all nations uh, across the board, and there's not to be an establishment of a Christian theocracy in the church age. So since the law ended, the church is not under the law, and the law is not a basis for the spiritual life of the church. But third point, believers in the church age are under a higher law, a higher law. We're under the law of Christ. The trouble with the law of Christ and the law of love and the law of faith, which is what we have in the New Testament, is that this involves thought. And you have to think through, first of all, you have to understand what these things mean in terms of the law of Christ, which is to love one another as Christ loved us. You have to think that through. And that's a little complicated, because the first thing you have to do is figure out what love means. And most people don't have a clue what love means. They start at the wrong place. They start with their own experience and their own feelings. They start with how their mother and their father uh, dealt with them. And that can be, if you didn't have good parents, if you had... Uh, abusive parents, that can lead you down a very wrong road. But most people don't start with the right definition. In fact, if you look the word love up in most dictionaries, you will have all, or you should have all kinds of problems because they define love as basically some sort of sentimental feeling. And in the Bible, it has nothing to do with sentiment. Your barometer for love in the Bible is ethical. And that is that uh, again and again in between John 13 and John 17, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you know if you love Jesus? Because you know the word of God and you obey the word of God. If you don't know the word of God, then you don't know if you're obeying him or not. So if you don't know the word of God, you can't love Jesus. You can sing, oh, how I love Jesus, but you don't have a clue. And that's how, unfortunately, how most evangelicals are today, is they think they love God, but what they've done is in the idolatry of their own soul, they've generated an abstract idol of God that they've fallen in love with. And they're just worshiping a manifestation of their own arrogant self. And the Bible says that love is the highest ethic for the New Testament. But to understand that, you have to understand the character of God, because the love of God cannot be understood in distinction from his righteousness and his justice, the three go together. You can't talk about love without talking about the standard of love, 
and the virtue in love, which comes out of his righteousness and out of his justice. So in the New Testament, the higher law gives us a certain level of freedom. The Old Testament, as Paul said, the Mosaic law in Galatians, he said, was like a, a tutor. Like when you were a little kid in the, in the Roman world, you had a pedagogue. You had a, a hired slave, and that slave's job was to walk around and tell you, you can do this, you can't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Everything was defined for you. But then once you reach maturity and you are a huias, an adopted adult son, then all of a sudden you have to live your life based on principle, and you're the one who has to apply the principle and make the decisions. And see, that's, that's how it plays out in history. The Jews were like a little kid. They had the law was like a pedagogue. They told them, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Everything in life was spelled out by the law. But when you get into the church age, now you're expected to know the principles of revelation under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So you have a greater degree of responsibility to learn the word and to apply it. And nobody's standing over your shoulder going, well, don't do this, don't do that, wear this, don't wear that, do that, don't do this. In other words, it calls for a much greater involvement of your thinking and a much less involvement of your emoting. This is probably why church age will fail uh, spiritually because people reject that. So the third point is the believers in the church age are under a higher law, the law of Christ. And fourth, which is I've alluded to already, which is the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament is in relationship to the Sabbath. And there's a very famous, well-known Old Testament theologian. I don't know if he's still alive. He taught for years, head of the Old Testament department at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago for years. And... A friend of mine once asked him, said, well, how do you, he said he observed the Sabbath every, every Sunday. <laughs> I've never figured out how they went from the seventh day to the first day, but that's another story. And he said, well, I don't watch football. Okay. And there's a lot of people that, that that's what they do. They just made, made this a cultural thing and added their own traditions to it. How rabbinical. Okay, we've looked at the limitations of the law. We've looked at the church in relationship to the law. And now I want to look at the purposes for the Mosaic Law. And there are six purposes for the Mosaic Law. And I'm just going to summarize these under six points. A couple of them I won't talk about much because I already have uh, in some degree, but this will synthesize it for you. First of all, the first purpose for the law was to provide a civil criminal and ceremonial law code for the nation. It provided a civil code for how people got along and dealt with each other when there were problems in an agricultural society. If your sheep get into somebody else's pasture and they produce sheep with your neighbor's sheep, then you've got to figure out who the lambs are going to belong to. Those are civil issues. Um, you have criminal issues. What happens when somebody steals or commits murder. Uh, then you have ceremonial issues in terms of how are you as a people going to come before God when you are violators of the law, transgressors, what is involved in cleansing and reconciliation with God. So it provides a civil, criminal, and ceremonial law code. There are three different, and you can't divide the law easily into one part and another part. 
There are three sections, and they're interwoven. You have civil law, criminal law, and ceremonial law. Second, the law was designed to teach the people who had been bought with a price and redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. It was to teach the redeemed people how a redeemed nation would live in holiness or set apart to the service of God. How now God is saying, now that I bought you and brought you out of Egypt and you're mine, this is how you live. This is how you will be distinct from all other peoples on the earth. So it was to teach the people how a redeemed nation would live set apart to the service of God. Third, the law was to demonstrate that no one could consistently keep the law. No one could keep all 613 commandments. Paul thought he was doing a good job until he came to thou shalt not covet. Then all of a sudden he realized it touched on all these mental attitude sins and he was in trouble. So the law was to demonstrate that no one could consistently keep the law and therefore you can't get saved by obeying a law code. The law wasn't given to help people, show people how to get saved, but to show people that you can't save yourself through your own righteousness because nobody can live up to the law code. And therefore, the Savior must do it for you. Fourth, it was to communicate God's grace in relationship to human failure. Time, time, and time again in the Mosaic Law, people fail, they become ceremonially unclean, they violate or transgress the law, and there's always a sacrifice to take care of the sin. God's grace covers everything. Fifth, it provided a law code that would promote freedom and prosperity for the nation. If they would just do what God said to do, they would have maximum freedom and maximum prosperity. That the prosperity in the, in the nation was not linked to, the, to the, having the right political system or the right political party in power. It wasn't linked to understanding the dynamics of the right economic system. It was linked to obeying God. If they obeyed God, God would make sure that they were prosperous. If they disobeyed God, didn't matter how right their politics were or how right their economics were, it would destroy the nation and God would take away their prosperity. And then the sixth purpose of the Mosaic Law was to serve as a tutor to lead us to Christ, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Now, all of this was important in the Old Testament, and it was the priest that was to communicate and to teach the law to the people. And if you go back into the book of Leviticus, the 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 work and the and the the uh, the, the, the qualifications and the uh, responsibilities of the priesthood are outlined. That's why it's called Leviticus because it has to do with the regulations for the Levites. And the, there's two sections that are important, and you can look at them uh, later. One is in uh, chapter eight through ten, where God regulates the priesthood. I'm just going to go back and kind of pick up a couple of things for illustrative purposes here and uh, Leviticus chapter 8 through 10. Chapter 8, we have the consecration 
of Aaron. This is where his sons are publicly recognized. We do something similar to it today in the church. It's called an ordination. It's a time when they're publicly recognized through a formal service uh, dictated, in this case, by the law, indicating that Aaron and his sons are specifically identified and set apart for the service of God. And because they're set apart for the service of God, the Mosaic law contains certain regulations for them. There were some things they could do and some things that they couldn't do. And so chapter 8 describes their uh, consecration. It describes how they are washed initially and fully, how the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on them as a sign of their salvation. Uh, as a, it's a, it typifies salvation. It's not a sign of their salvation, but it, it shows that they're being set apart to God. And you have the uh, various offerings that had to be offered outlined in chapter 9. There had to be a sin offering. There had to be a burnt offering. And there had to be various peace offerings and grain offerings. All of these offerings were designed, according to verse 7, to make atonement for themselves. See, they were a fallen priesthood. They were just as much sinners as the people they were representing. And first, before they could serve the people, they had to be cleansed, and they had to uh, have these sacrifices applied to them. Also, we see that God has specifically defined who would serve as a priest and who wouldn't, that there were those who were qualified and those that weren't, and that Aaron's uh, high priest priesthood would go through, as a descendant down through his son Eliezer, but he had two sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, in chapter 10, who decided that they could, they, they could define how to get to God and how to serve God on their own. So you have the same problem today. You have a lot of people who just want to say, well, I think that the way God would do it is this way. And so then they trot down their little Abihu and Nadab rebellion. And so we've, we learned that they tr- tried to come to God's presence with their own fire that wasn't set apart through the correct formal service that had been defined by the uh, Mosaic law. And so this is why the text says they offered profane fire. That just means common. It wasn't set apart. It wasn't set apart through ceremonial sanctification. And so when they went in, the Lord uh, devoured them. They just sort of uh, evaporated uh, he just zapped them uh, right there, and they had the instant death penalty. Because God is emphasizing the fact, as He say, states in verse three, those who come to by those who come to me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be, I must be glorified. Then, if you get down into chapter ten, verses eight and following, there are certain regulations that the priests had to follow. They were not to drink wine or any kind of intoxicating beverage. They couldn't drink wine or beer. They had to uh, eat certain prescribed foods. Uh, They were given the remnants of certain offerings to uh, sustain them. If you skip over a few chapters to chapter 21 and 22, there are further regulations for the priests, if you're going to serve God, you have to live a certain kind uh, of lifestyle. They couldn't, uh, in terms of grooming, they were told in verse 5, Leviticus 21.5, they shall not make any ball place on their heads. You know how the Roman Catholic priests have a little tonsure and have a little, they would cut their head a certain, hair a certain way? Well, that's what pagans did. 
So when God gives these regulations for the priesthood, it's set against what the pagans did so that they wouldn't follow pagan practices. So they weren't to trim the beard, their beards a certain way. They weren't to uh, shave a bald spot on their heads a certain way. They weren't to cut their flesh to scar themselves a certain way, which is what many of the pagan, uh, pagan priests did, that they had to have a, a family that was held to a higher uh, ethical standard. So in verse 9, if a priest's daughter uh, was a prostitute, then she would be uh, burned at the stake. The burning, burning at the stake had to do with pure picture of purification. So there was a higher standard there. He had to marry a wife that was a virgin in verse 13. He couldn't marry a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who had been a, a prostitute. They were qualified because they had to be descendants of the tribe of Levi. And if you read through all these qualifications, they were all physical and genetic. They had to do, they had to, they couldn't be, have any sort of blemishes. They couldn't be crippled in any way, uh, because they had to picture, uh, man at its, at his best. But there's no qualification that they had to be a believer. There was no qualification for them spiritually because it had to do simply with the, the, the genetic uh, heritage with uh, Aaron and the Levites. So the priesthood was regulated, but it's regulated on the basis of physical descent, and it's on the basis of physical qualifications and some moral qualifications, but no spiritual uh, qualifications. Now, we'll stop there come back next time and look at some of the other issues related to the priesthood as it was understood by these Jews, these Hebrews that are receiving this letter because these came out of the priesthood and they probably had some distorted ideas based on what the rabbis taught at the time as to what the future priest would be like at the time that the Messiah returned. And that's why he spends so much time dealing with the need for a new priesthood and why Jesus fits this qualification and that this was clearly set up in the Old Testament. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to go back and just to tie connections together uh, from the Old Testament to see how there is a complete unfolding of your revelation. Everything fits together. One thing is built upon another thing down through history. And we see that what happens in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension and session, that this is a fulfillment of that which is pictured and that which is prophesied in the Old Testament. We pray that we might have a greater appreciation for the truthfulness of your word and for the complexity of our salvation in all of its dimensions, phase one, phase two, and phase three. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.